And now would you please uh, stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Thank you, those who are able. So reading from Revelation chapter three. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my, my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again. I'm batching it a bit uh, this weekend. My wife and daughter Phoebe are both in Dallas, Texas for a wedding shower for our oldest daughter who gets married in three weeks. So it's everything, all this kind of coming to an end here seems to be getting more and more real and more and more busy. One of the things that's going to happen today is I won't be able to stay for communion because we have a big day in Palos. We're welcoming 11 new members to the church today, uh, which is amazing. I mean, that's, that is, well, you're thanking the Lord because this is what the Lord has done. The Lord has done this, and there are a bunch of, as, as Jeff said, we've got deacons that are ready to be voted on. In the next few weeks, we're going to be doing uh, uh, baptizing three uh, young children. So there's just a lot going on. So we really appreciate your continued prayers for everything happening down in Palos. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity again to bring your word, your good news of the gospel uh, to this congregation, to, to my congregation, to this church, your church. Father, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would fall on all who are here, that they would truly hear the very words of God. They would be encouraged. Father, I pray for those who are weak and wounded, sick and sore here, that they would be able to cling to these words as encouragement. Father, thank you for preserving the words of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, question for you this morning. Have you ever uh, kind of embarked on some kind of maybe a task, or maybe we could even call it a mission or an adventure, where you really had every reason to expect that the outcome of that was going to be a fair amount of, shall we say, glory 
for you. Like that, you had every reason to anticipate that the outcome of this was going to be amazing and you were going to maybe be kind of the center of it. And maybe we have all done that. But now I want you to imagine, and maybe you have more reference points for this, that it ends up, that little task or mission or adventure ends up not going the way you thought, and instead of expected glory, you end up with unexpected hardship. That's probably exactly what uh, the men who had signed up to go with Ernest Shackleton in 1914 to, south, uh, to the South Pole, to Antarctica of all places, were experiencing. So Ernest Shackleton, if you were alive during that point, Ernest Shackleton was a famous guy. He was famous because he was an explorer and an adventurer and he liked to do really hard things. He wanted to be the very first person to reach the South Pole, but he, he made a couple attempts, didn't work out. He almost got there a couple different times, but Sir Edmund Hillary beat him and you, all, you know who he is, right? Because he's the person who, I think maybe I'm, maybe I'm right about that. Anyway, somebody beat him. So he's not daunted by this at all. He says to himself, you know what, that's okay. You can be the first person to the South Pole. I'll be the first person to traverse all of Antarctica. Now imagine that. Imagine that that's your mission and you think to yourself, I wonder if I can find anybody to go with me. And he did. He found a whole team of men who said, I will go with you. That would be amazing and wonderful. And so they sign up expecting glory and they leave in December of 2014 from, uh, from the, down to the south of uh, Argentina. And in January of 2015, kind of unexpectedly, the ice had, had been earlier than expected and they, they hit ice, which isn't good. And eventually, uh, they find themselves trapped in the ice on their boat, the Endurance. So it's January 2015, your boat's trapped in the ice, your adventure to cross the South, uh, the South Pole, to cross Antarctica has somehow been stopped, but they're not on land, they're, they're in ice. And so what they do for the next literally 10 months is they ride the ice flow as it flows in and out of the bay, this huge bay in Antarctica. And then by October of 2015, so 10 months later, their ship is actually crushed. So it's not getting out of the ice. And a month later, the ship sinks. So now you're on this wonderful adventure to cross Antarctica. The ship that you're on has been crushed before your eyes. And now it's sunk and you're thinking, how in the world are we getting home? Well, Ernest Shackleton says, I've got a plan. How about if I, if I travel for, for four months and I'll make my way to the tip with this little dinghy and I'll make a, I'll make a, a kind of a man, handmade sail and I'll sail my way back to a whaling station and I'll come back and get you later. That's exactly what happened. Now, in that story, I think if you're like me, we want to be Ernest Shackleton. That's the person we want to be. And it's like, yes, I want to be that guy. Nobody says, yeah, in that story, I kind of see myself as the person waving goodbye to Ernest Shackleton on an ice shelf with just like the remnants of the boat, hoping that he'll come back. But that's exactly the picture that the Bible paints of who we are, that we're not Ernest Shackleton, that we are these people 
stranded on an ice shelf, needing to put all of our trust in someone who we can count on to use all of his power, all of his leadership for our benefit. And that's exactly the message of church, that the Church of Philadelphia is getting. This is the picture of Jesus that they're getting. This church that is weak and wounded and exhausted. And this whole passage, what it does is it presumes one thing. So for this passage to work, there's a, a presupposition. And the presupposition is that this church is exhausted from extending the life-changing love of Jesus. That's why they're exhausted, because they've been so busy engaging in the mission of God in and around the city of Philadelphia that they're just absolutely worn out. And the Jesus that they get is this Jesus. The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the keys of David, the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. That's the Jesus that they get. This is one of two churches that gets no rebuke. Maybe it's because the church had done nothing wrong, but more likely it's because what the church needed at this moment was not a rebuke. But what this church needed to know is that the Jesus that they were following was going to use all of his authority for their benefit. That they're weak and wounded, sick and sore. That the mission of God is, as he, he tells, Jesus says to his followers, pick up your cross and follow me. So we know from the beginning, even though the initial followers probably when they started following him were thinking, this is going to be glory for me. We know that the disciples struggled with this. The disciples are struggling with, when am I getting the glory that I think I'm going to get by following you? And instead, they routinely end up in these situations of unexpected hardship. And this is what we have to come to deal with is, how do we as Christians deal with the fact that while we're awaiting glory, we are struggling with hardship every single day? And this is the Jesus that we need. It's the Jesus that they have, the Jesus that promises to use all of his authority, all of his leadership for their benefit. And here, here's how he does. So we'll just kind of go through this passage. This is really straightforward, which makes it really easy. That Christ uses his authority to grant access to the Father. So you'll see it right here. It says, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So this is the words, these are the words that Jesus is saying to this church that's, that's exhausted and tired from extending the life-changing love of Jesus. And why would, why would these be the words that Jesus needs them to hear? So a few weeks ago, when Jeff was in uh, Palos, he talked about it. I thought, oh man, this is wonderful. I'm going to steal this and use it as my own. Um, but since I just told you that Jeff is the person who said it, you know that I'm not very good at stealing. But he talked about Revelation basically being like a Wikipedia page with all of these hyperlinks. And so if you were looking at this passage, there would be very few words in this passage that didn't have a hyperlink to go with them. This one's just chock full of them, and I do not have time to hit them all today. But I'm going to hit a few of the big ones. And one of the big ones comes from Isaiah 22, 
where Isaiah writes, And I will place on his shoulders the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And that should sound very familiar because it's almost word for word what Jesus' words are to this church. And so how is it that this passage is communicating that Jesus uses his authority to grant access to the Father? So some scholars, some Bible commentators have looked at this and said, well, this is really about the open door that the church at Philadelphia has for, for witnessing, for preaching the gospel to those around them. And there's a couple passages that maybe could help you come to that conclusion. Uh, Paul talks about an open door somewhere to go to preach the gospel. And so all of these churches should have been engaged in extending the life-changing love of Jesus. And so, yes... Having an open door to preach the gospel is perhaps part of what's being said, but I don't think it's the main focus. Because this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 22, really doesn't have anything to do with that. It really has more to do with Eliakim, who becomes he's the kind of the household manager for King Hezekiah. He, he's the kind of the gatekeeper for this, and, and it says that he's the person on whom all authority and access to the house of David is going to stand. And this makes sense when we look at what the passage says. It says, I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan. Just so you know, if you're ever thinking of a group that you want to join, if it's called the synagogue of Satan, you're probably going to want to take a pass. This is the group that you don't want to be a part of. Those who are of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. And the lie that they're telling the church in Philadelphia, these Christians, these Jewish converts most likely to the faith, is you're not a part of God's people. You're not a part of God's people. That Jesus, he's not the way. And they're communicating it all over town. And so the words that come from Jesus to this church is, I am the Holy One and the True One. I am the one who opens the door, and when I open it, no one shuts it. And I decide who the door gets shut on. That's who I am. So you need to hear me saying that you have access to God because I said that you do. This is good news for them. So when I was a bit younger... Shall we say, I used to like to go to an occasional nightclub or night spot. And there were certain nightclubs I knew I could get into. And then there were other nightclubs, and I know there are, you know, so in Cedar Rapids, there aren't a ton of nightclubs. But in places like Chicago, there's all kinds of nightclubs. And there's certain nightclubs I just know I couldn't get into. I'm just not cool enough. I'm not hip enough. I don't have the right clothes. I don't know the right people. I have no idea what kind of music they're even playing. But you've seen these in the movies, right, where the person's trying to get into the club and the person's like, yeah, you and you and you, but not you. And the wonderful thing for us is this is not how Jesus works. That Jesus does not grant access to the kingdom of God based on what you look like and what you can do for him and what you've done and who you know and what you've accomplished. He grants access based on his love of you. And so when he says, I'm the one who opens the door, I open the door and no one shuts it, this is good news for every single sinner. That we are guaranteed access to God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And he uses 
his authority not just to grant us access to God, but also to encourage us. He says, I know you have little power. So imagine reading that if you're the church at Philadelphia. I think a lot of us want to read something like that. And we want to say, well, no, wait a second. Now, I, I, hold on. I'm, I'm a pretty strong, pretty good guy, but Jesus is stating the obvious here. You have little power compared to what you see around you, the people that you see flourishing, the people that are in authority around you. You have little power. And so Jesus affirms their own weakness. And this is good news for us, that we can actually hear from Jesus that we are weak and that we have little power and not lose hope. Normally when you're told, oh, you're, you're too weak, you're, you're very weak, you don't really have much, we think to ourselves, oh, that, that's not good for me. But when Jesus says that it's okay. But notice what he does. After he affirms the reality that they are weak, here's what he says. He says, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Jesus does a wonderful job of encouraging them. He says, listen, you are weak. I know that when you look around you, you're weak compared to everything that you see. But here's what I need you to know. You've kept my word about patient endurance. You've not denied my name. He's commending what they've done. And what they've done takes some work. It takes some energy. I love that in this passage, over and over again, he keeps saying, behold, 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 like he has to get their attention to remind them and make sure that they're hearing what he's saying. Behold this, behold, behold, listen, I know you're weak, I know you have little power, but yet you've kept my name, you've not denied my name, you've kept my word about patient endurance. This is really kind of a, a pushback to the way that we so often measure ourselves about power and authority and a kind of where we are. And yet Jesus comes to us and says, no, here's the way you should have been measuring yourself this whole time. Not in your perceived strength, but in the fact that you've been faithful, you've not denied my name, you've kept my word about patient endurance. And maybe for those of us who are parents, there's a little bit of encouragement here. Because parenting is hard. It takes a long time. And I was watching videos of Josie this past week and pictures you know, these magical pictures when they're like three and four and you as the parent are the perfect person who's done no wrong, who can answer any question they have, who are so revered. And then they turn five and six and seven and eight and nine and ten and then they become teenagers and you're convinced that you can't do anything right that everything you do has, has, has been somehow a failure. And the encouragement here is that I'm, I'm not supposed to measure myself that way. What I'm supposed to measure myself is, have I been faithful to what God has called me to do? The patient endurance of following God every day. Have I been faithful to that? This is encouraging words. And he uses his authority to vindicate us. And I'll just be honest with you. If there's a, a passage in scripture that I like, it's this one. Like this one's just, let's just admit that this is, this is a fun one to enjoy. Here's what he says. He said, behold, I will make them, these members of the synagogue of Satan, I will make them come down and bow before your feet. That sounds good. Doesn't that sound enjoyable for the church at Philadelphia to hear these people who've been making their lives miserable, 
telling them that they are not a part of God's people, ridiculing them, mocking them, shutting them out of the marketplace, doing everything they can to persecute them, turning them over again and again and again to Rome to be told, hey, listen, these people who persecute you, I am going to make them come down and bow at your feet. And I kind of want to say, how soon can that happen? And I wonder if they were imagining the same thing. And again, as Jeff had said, there's a bunch of hyperlinks here. And this comes from Isaiah 49, where it says, Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their kings your nurse, or your queens your nursing mothers. Uh, with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait with me shall not be put to shame. So the message that Jesus has for them is, listen, I know that you want to vindicate yourself. This is when we sing this song uh, in Palos, and maybe you sing it here, based on Psalm 73. It's a beautiful psalm because in the psalm, the psalmist paints this picture of, okay, so Psalm 1, which told me that what I was supposed to do is blessed are those who, you know, do everything God says. They're like a tree planted by streams of, of, of good water, and everything they do flourishes. And so I set about to do that exact thing. And then by the time you get to 73, you're singing this psalm. Okay, when I look out at the wicked, I see that they are prospering and they are fat and sleek and know no pain and everybody follows after them and I'm over here doing everything right and they're over there doing everything wrong and yet they're flourishing. What's up with that? That's halfway through Psalm 73. But then at the end of the Psalm 73, it says, oh, wait, but then I realized what happens to them. I stepped back and I realized I was being brutish and arrogant, and I saw their destruction. That Jesus uses his authority to remind us that he's responsible for vindicating us, not ourselves, that it's not our job in this life to vindicate ourselves to those people that we desperately, desperately want to vindicate ourselves to for who we are. Maybe it, it happens to you in the workplace. You're like, do you know how many opportunities for advancement I can't access because I'm not willing to do the thing that's going to get me promoted? So I'm, I'm trying to be a good Christian. And the people around me who aren't doing that are getting promoted and how am I going to it's not doesn't seem fair to me. And maybe you see it in school. You're not in the, in the cool club because you're not willing to do the things that you have to do to be in the cool club. And you're like, but I want them to know that I'm a good person. I want them to, I want to be loved. And what Jesus says is, listen, I promise you, I'm going to make those people bow down at your feet and they will know that I've loved you. Think of how encouraging this was to the church at Philadelphia that wondered, how will they be vindicated? How, how can they go about vindicating themselves in the message that Jesus comes to them and says, no, no, listen, I will vindicate you. They will know that I have loved you. So Jesus uses his authority to grant access to the Father. He uses his authority to encourage us. He uses his authority to vindicate us. And he uses his authority to protect us. It says, I will keep you from the tribulation that is coming upon the whole earth. Now, 
If you were maybe, you know, listening to gospel radio or watching a gospel TV show, you would come to the conclusion that what this means, or maybe you're reading the Left Behind book series, you will come to the conclusion that what this means is if you love Jesus, when bad things come around, don't worry, you're getting a free ticket on the plane to heaven before everything goes bad. That that's what this must mean. And if, if you were in a, in, a, in a church where this theology is taught, this is the passage you would go to. Listen, I'm going to protect you. If you are one of mine, I'm going to protect you from the tribulation that's coming on the whole earth. The only problem with that is when language like this has been used throughout Scripture, it has never meant that the people are exempt from suffering. In fact, Scripture seems to emphasize the fact that God's people suffer. What this passage is offering them is protection through the suffering and ultimately protection at the end when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. And I love this phrase. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. So if we were to go to Isaiah 22 and we were to, to, to read through it, what we would realize is that this passage is talking about something that happens in 2 Kings 18 and 19, where the Assyrian army has basically destroyed the northern kingdom and they've invaded now Judah, the southern kingdom, and, and the messenger of the king is standing in front of King Hezekiah's palace and he's like, okay, come on out, I need to talk to you. And out comes Eliakim. And the king of Assyria's messenger says, listen, here's the deal. We've destroyed everybody. There is no God that is possible to stand up to us. Where are all these people and their God destroyed by us? What about these people and their God destroyed by us? Look around at all the people around you and their gods. We've destroyed them. Do not think for a moment that you're going to say, our God's going to deliver us and he's going to do it because he's not going to do it because we're going to destroy you. And so King Hezekiah sends Eliakim to Isaiah and Isaiah says, here's the deal. Fear not. I'm going to make that king fight among himself. You're like, what? Trust me on this one. I'm Isaiah. I talk to the Lord. This is what I say. And this is exactly what happens. But all of Isaiah, remember, is a prophecy that says that the people of Judah are eventually going to be judged. They're eventually going to be judged for what they've done. They're going to go to Babylon in captivity. And then eventually, it says in Isaiah, they'll be rescued. And so there's this promise of kind of immediate deliverance that Eliakim is able to pronounce, but yet... As Isaiah goes on, he's pronouncing the judgment of Judah, which is very certain. And as you read this passage, what it says in, in Isaiah 22, it says, And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring in every issue, every small vessel from the cups to the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So we're like, oh, that doesn't sound good. I want to be a peg, because eventually the peg gives away. And so when God tells them, when Jesus says to them, listen, I'm going to make you a pillar in my temple, what he's saying is, listen, 
I'm going to make you into a pillar that cannot be removed. So much better than a peg that you will be in me, in my kingdom, in my temple in a way that cannot ever be removed. He uses his authority to exhort us. He says, hold fast your crown and to the one who conquers. These are good words of encouragement that Jesus is able to come to them and say, listen, I know it's hard. I know you're tired. I know you're exhausted from extending the life-changing love of Jesus. What I need you to do is just keep doing what you're doing. Just hold fast. This is good news. Jesus is a great coach. Thankfully, he's an even better savior. Right? That he comes to us when we're exhausted. He says, listen, just, just keep doing what you're doing. Don't worry. I'm using all of my authority on your behalf to grant access to the Father, to encourage you, to vindicate you, to protect you, to exhort you. And then finally, he uses his authority to give us a new name. If you look down at the end of the passage, it says, hold fast what you have so that no one can seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus uses his authority to give us a new identity, and that new identity is that he makes us his. Three times in that passage he uses this phrase, of my God. The temple of my God. I will write on him the name of my God and the city of my God. That this idea of being of my God and Jesus offering it to us is the idea that we're given a new identity, that we belong to God. And then he says three different times, I'm going to write on you my name. I'm going to write on you the name of my God. I'm going to write on you the name of the city of my God. And all of this is about belonging. This is good news. If you're the church at Philadelphia and you are absolutely exhausted from extending the life-changing love of Jesus, what Jesus comes to them and says is, listen, I did not just call you to extend the life-changing love of the gospel to those around you. Don't forget that I came to you so that you could experience this life-changing love that I offer. And then I use all of my authority to grant access to the Father, to encourage you, to vindicate you, to protect you, to exhort you, and to give you a new identity, which is you are mine. You are my people. And so like I said at the beginning of this sermon, this, this, this passage only works for us if we interact with it as people who are engaged in the extending of the kingdom of God. And we do that in our homes, we do that in our workplaces, we do that in our schools, we do that in our communities. But this passage is saying, listen, I get that extending is hard. And in our culture today, you know, this is not 1940s and 50s America where everybody liked Christians. This is not that place anymore. It's getting harder and harder and harder to be a Christian in our age. And what Jesus would say to you is, listen, I know that you are weak. I know that you are weary. Trust me, I am going to use all of my authority for your benefit because I love you and you are my people and you are forgiven because of what I have done and you don't have to vindicate yourselves. 
I will take care of that. I will grant access to the Father. I will protect you. You are my children. This is the good news of the gospel for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Father, thank you for reminding us that so often we do forget that your son is our hope. That we find ourselves in difficult situations and we decide that we are the person who needs to vindicate ourselves. We feel like all is lost and there is no hope. We are tired from being communicated to that we're not worthy, that we don't measure up. Our own sin, our own past sin overwhelms us and convinces us that we're not worthy, that you won't welcome us into your kingdom. And so, Father, we repent for not trusting and believing in the gospel, which is that we are worthy before you because not of what we have done, but because of what your Son has done for us. Father, forgive us for that sin. Father, help us to cling to your Son, who uses all of his authority to offer us life-changing love of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would continue to knit us together into your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.